0: I like observational studies. I find that most high-impact observational studies lead us to the following conclusion. There is an association between X and Y. We cannot say if X causes Y. But this leads us to question our current practice, and we should turn to expert opinion or run an RCT. And I think, if nothing else, observational studies are valuable in helping us to question some of our current practices in situations where maybe we couldn't study uh, because running an RCT may be unethical. Welcome, Polkcasters. We've got another edition of our Journal Club series here. Jared, you think people are getting tired of this JC series yet? Maybe. If they are, this is the last one that we're going to do for
1: a while. This one's going to be a little different. Rather than describe a bunch of terms and sizzle breakfast stuff, we're going to walk right through an observational paper and use a critical appraisal tool. And not just some measly observational study. This is an observational study that's making waves. Jeremy's actually not hyping this too hard for once. This paper has made a ton of waves, both in the online medical community and in our local hospitals. And that
0: paper is... Association between tracheal intubation during in-hospital cardiac arrest and survival. It was published
1: in JAMA in February of 2017 by Lars Anderson et al. and was an observational study looking at intubating patients in the hospital during cardiac arrest.
0: John, RCTs are the bee's knees. Why are we wasting our time on an observational study? Well, we should, we should care about wasting the listener's time, not just our
1: time. But true RCTs are typically considered the gold standard. Last year, we had some discussion within our Journal Club planning team, the volume of impact studies out there, and we decided to limit our time in Journal Club to focus on high-impact RCTs only. And so that's the direction we've gone going forward. So that's it for the observational study then? Why do people use them? Observational studies have their place in EBM, too. We'll link some interesting opinion papers in the Journal of Critical Care Medicine earlier this year. But to boil down the discussion, major RCTs have to focus on internal validity, so much so that they have to ignore entirely external validity.
0: Journal Club, civil time.
1: Jeremy, do we got to gimmick everything? Let's just
0: tell them what they mean. All right. Internal validity reflects the correctness of the study result in the enrolled patients. It's maximized by eliminating bias, eliminating confounders, and unnecessary variation. Now, on the other hand, external validity reflects whether a causal relationship can be generalized for the population of interest, and it's maximized by having few exclusion criteria so that the study population better matches the population of interest. So to interpret what you're saying, high-quality RCTs increase the internal validity, but to do so, they have to sacrifice external validity. Bingo. In fact, 90% of the average intensive care population would be excluded from most of the major RCTs in the ICU field. Wow, 90%? That's huge. Always know your exclusion criteria for major RCTs. If your patient would be excluded from an RCT, it's impossible to know if they would actually benefit from the therapy that you're going to administer. Another way to discuss
1: the internal versus external validity is the more homogenous a population, the better internal validity, but we all know our ICU population
0: is very heterogeneous. RCTs typically have to exclude patients with a lot of chronic comorbidities, which makes up a lot of our ICU population and typically the population in the hospital in general. RCTs cost a ton of money, need a lot of resources, and require huge research teams so you can see why they focus so much on internal validity. They want to get a positive test result. Homogeneity
1: of patients allows them to properly power to a smaller patient size and still get a statistically significant result. So to summarize all of that,
0: the article we chose today actually is important.
1: Well, it's associated with importance. (laughs)
0: Let's walk ourselves through some of the critical appraisal tool, and then we're going to talk in further detail about the article itself. Uh, We'll send you the link to the critical appraisal tool that we use in the show notes, and we chose this article on association of tracheal intubation during in-hospital cardiac arrest and survival because it's been talked about a lot in our ICU system over the past few months. We've had this question of intubating during codes, and it's starting to come up more and more frequently. Let's start with PICO time. All right, I got this one. The population was adults who suffered an in-hospital cardiac arrest, the intervention was tracheal intubation, the comparison was no tracheal intubation, and the outcome was survival to hospital discharge. First question, was the study population clearly
1: specified and defined? Another way to phrase that or think about this would be, if you were to conduct this
0: study again, would you know who to recruit? They looked at all comers of in-hospital cardiac arrest except those who were already intubated at the time of cardiac arrest. Now, they excluded patients with missing data in the registry, and they utilized the Get With the Guidelines registry, which is sponsored by the AHA. In contrast to RCTs, one of the critical
1: appraisal questions is, was the participant rate of eligible persons at least 50%? And the reason this is important is that observational studies favor generalizability to large populations of patients, or in this case, patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest. If they excluded lots of patients, it would make it difficult for us to know
0: what to do with these results because it may not apply to our patient population. The next question that we need to ask ourselves was, was a size sample justification or a power description provided? Observational studies often don't really report anything about power or sample sizes because analyses are exploratory in nature. In this case, the answer would be no. It's not a fatal flaw in the study, but it likely would be if this were an RCT.
1: It's not necessarily a flaw, but they did not present their reasoning for the sample size justification or power. They simply took all the IHCA's eligible over a 13-year period. This type of commentary you would typically see in an RCT, but it can be absent from an observational study. RCTs have to care about power and justify their sample size because the larger the sample size, the more expensive the RCT, and on the order of millions of dollars. That's why it's not uncommon to see RCTs with sample sizes in the hundreds, but to see observationals with sample sizes in the hundreds of
0: thousands. Next question. Were the outcome measures, aka the dependent variables, clearly defined? In this study, they were. Primary outcome was survival to discharge,
1: and secondary outcome was ROSC and favorable functional outcomes. ROSC
0: is obviously objective, but functional outcomes? I mean, that could be so subjective. So they used cerebral performance score from Stein to make it objective.
1: So the next question on the appraisal tool is, Were the outcome assessors blinded to
0: the exposure status of participants? This is another area of difference between RCTs and observational studies. Blinding is sometimes called masking in observational studies, where the participants and providers can't be blinded, but the people who are assessing the data can be. Rather than caring about the providers taking care of the patient being blinded, we now care that the person analyzing the data is blinded to the potential outcome when they're actually crunching the numbers.
1: There's no mention in this paper of an assessor being blinded, so we have to assume they were unblinded.
0: Reading through an observational study has some similarities and differences from RCTs. You may recall that most major medical RCTs have a table 1 that lists many of the patient characteristics of both groups. You're supposed to read it to see if they're similar to each other and compare them to the typical patient population that you're seeing. This study does have a Table 1, just like RCTs, that compares the two groups that they look at.
1: They also list an extensive in-hospital cardiac arrest characteristics in Table 1, which is interesting to read because it goes into things like the location of the rest within the hospital, pre-existing conditions
0: the patient had, and much more. So the authors talk about using time-dependent propensity score matching. What is that? This approach has been used in other
1: studies when assessing time-dependent interventions. It's designed to account for the fact that ROSC
0: could be achieved before the intubation is needed. So you're saying that a patient who had ROSC early could have been in the intubation group if they hadn't gotten ROSC so soon. That's it. They essentially
1: did one-on-one risk matching on propensity score using nearest neighbor
0: algorithm nearest neighbor algorithm, like uh, like Mr. Rogers. Who's going to explain that? <laughs> what is that voice? Was that like your mob voice? Yeah.
1: All right, All right I'll give it, I'll, I'll try to explain it. Patients being intubated at any given minute were separately and sequentially matched with a patient
0: at risk of being intubated within that same minute. So they looked for similar patients still undergoing resuscitation at given minute.
1: Yes, and let's make it a little more confusing at risk patients could have included patients who were intubated later as matching should not be dependent of future events so they almost
0: blinded themselves when propensity score matching the patients of the future outcome death rosc before tube tube or no tube that's what the attention was for the propensity scoring matching just a few more basics about propensity score matching Each patient could really have received either treatment being compared, which you'd call chance. So in our paper, could each patient really have received the exposure? We don't know. Huh? I mean, I'll answer your question with a question. What kinds of factors determine the probability that intubation will occur in a given minute of cardiac arrest? Well, yikes. If you think about it that way, actually a lot.
1: Location of patient within the hospital, ease of the code team getting to that patient, The amount of staff present early in the code, the type of staff there, are there intubating providers, are there respiratory therapists, ease of access to the equipment, amount of people in the room
0: getting in my way to intubate. So, you know, the authors didn't define this, and I think you uh, probably stumbled upon why. There's so many human factor variables on what minute a patient could be expected to be intubated during an in-hospital cardiac arrest that it's almost impossible to truly define that. So what were their results? Well, some quick header facts. They looked at over 100,000 patients at nearly 700 hospitals. Almost 70% of those patients were intubated. Is that the number that we'd expect to see?
1: Well, I guess based on anecdotal experience, that sounds about right for the healthcare systems I've worked in. And the median time to intubation was 5 minutes. A total of 22% of patients survived a discharge. 62.5% had ROSC. But only 16% had a good functional outcome. Yikes, those numbers are sobering, especially their survival to discharge and the functional outcome. Right, but good reminder that cardiac arrest is bad for people. (laughs) So what were their outcomes? Well, in the unadjusted analysis, patients intubated with it in the first 15 minutes had a lower survival to discharge, which was the primary outcome. And pretty compelling. 17% versus
0: 33%. ROSC was lower in those intubated, too, by 10 percentage points. And good functional outcome was lower as well, 11% versus 25%.
1: Now that's just the unadjusted numbers. The study spent a lot of time explaining time propensity
0: score matching and all those fancy things. What did that show? Out of the original 108,000 patients, 86,000 were included in the propensity score match cohort and matched one to one. Despite propensity matching, all
1: meaningful primary and secondary outcomes were lower in the intubation group, survival to discharge,
0: ROSC, and perhaps
1: most importantly, good
0: functional outcome. Wow. Let's take a quick look at the subgroup analyses and specifically respiratory insufficiency. Surely patients who went from a Obvious respiratory arrest and hypoxia into cardiac arrest did better with intubation, right?
1: Surprisingly, the answer was no. Even when they adjusted for respiratory insufficiency, there was no difference between survival to discharge, ROSC, or functional outcomes. So what were the authors' discussion points? They noted this was a large multicenter
0: retrospective observational matched cohort study. That's a mouthful. And there are no RCTs comparing intubation versus no intubation in in in-hospital
1: cardiac arrests. They do mention a few more observational studies on intubation during cardiac arrest, both in hospital and out of hospital. We'll link those in the show Show. Show.
0: notes. As an aside, probably the biggest area where a journal club presenter can go from good to great is to be able to present their paper in context with additional literature on the subject. Now, this is hard for the novice presenter, but many times papers do this for you in the discussion. All you have to do is follow those cited papers and look to see if they had any good review summaries or meta-analyses
1: included. So to summarize, the other literature they mention is two small studies with less than 500 patients in 1990 and 2001, which is tiny for an
0: observational study. There have been two large observational studies before this one, one in Japan and one in Korea. The Japanese large observational study had almost
1: 650,000 patients in it, and it noticed a decreased odds of survival for intubation
0: in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And interestingly, the Korean study found favorable outcomes in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and intubations over a large observational study but patients who got intubated in the study it was very rare 4 to 6% in both the Japanese and Korean study which makes the study impossible to interpret and extrapolate for our purposes impossible
1: to compare in hospital cardiac arrest here to out of hospital the Lars Anderson paper quoted 70% of in hospital cardiac arrest patients got intubated versus 4 to 6% in the out of hospital studies there's just no comparison between those patient populations. An
0: astute observation, John. Apparently, doing this Journal Club series has paid off for you.
1: No other study has accounted for time-dependent nature of intubation during cardiac arrest, except for this one. What do the authors think explain their findings? Well, they go on to guess several reasons they found worsened outcomes in intubation during cardiac arrest. It's important to know this is where we leave the literature behind
0: and get into best medical guesses. All the observational study can show is that patients who were intubated during in-hospital cardiac arrest had worsened outcomes. Now, it cannot tell us why that would have to be done in further studies. It actually
1: also only shows correlation and can't infer causality. That intubation caused the worst outcomes. As we always say, in absence of evidence-based medicine, turn to expert opinion. So what do the authors, online medical community, and our local experts
0: think? The main reason thrown around is interruptions during CPR. And this is a natural assumption as the cardiac arrest literature continues to highlight over and over the importance of CPR over pretty much all other interventions that can be done during cardiac arrest. That makes sense. Anything else? The authors discussed the potential for hyperventilation or hyperoxia with an endotracheal tube, delay of defibrillation or epinephrine with multiple attempts at securing an ET tube, inadequate ventilation or oxygenation during the intubation attempts and apnea time, and potentially unrecognized esophageal intubation. What did they think were the potential benefits of intubation during in-hospital cardiac arrest? The, The big ones they
1: talked about were protecting from aspiration And once you do have the intrachial tube in place, you can do more continuous CPR, whereas if you are not intubated or don't have an advanced airway, you
0: have to stick to the traditional 30 and 2. The authors felt like respiratory insufficiency should have improved outcomes in their study due to respiratory failure as the etiology of their arrest. But this wasn't the case when they did a subgroup analysis. The authors listed potential confounders as the skills and experience of intubating providers, the quality of CPR during the code, the indications for intubation, and unfortunately, data on unsuccessful intubation attempts weren't available. Even though that wasn't available, that would have skewed the results toward the
1: null because patients where intubation was attempted but not successful should have done worse than those who were successfully intubated.
0: So we've talked about the author's conclusions on the outcome. What's our conclusion?
1: We picked this trial because it attempts to answer a question we're interested in. But it also is a great example of why observational studies can be useful. This may not get studied in a major RCT ever. If it does get studied in a major RCT, then it has this study in JAMA, which is an extremely high-impact journal, to thank for getting them funding.
0: Going back to the original question, this is certainly a heterogeneous patient population. If this study is to be believed, it's certainly easier to extrapolate to our heterogeneous patient population in practice. Intubating patients is actually not in the
1: ACLS algorithm, even though I think people think it might be. And it's not in the AHA recommendations anywhere. And as the author states, there are no RCTs on the subject whatsoever.
0: So I suppose that you could consider that intubating a patient during in-hospital cardiac arrest is the exact opposite of practicing evidence-based medicine. That being
1: said, it's been common practice at every hospital I've worked at. So do we change our whole
0: practice based on one observational study? Mm, I think it's hard for me to change my own personal practice based on a single observational study. RCT snob. Let me rephrase your question then. The real question is, the next time you're in a code, what are you going to do? Are you going to intubate? Are you going to throw in an LMA? What if somebody else goes to intubate? Are you going to stop them? What if they want to hold chest compressions? What are you going to say? Should we just stick with the conventional 30 to 2? I mean, I thought continuous CPR was objectively better. That was a lot of questions.
1: Uh, I'll try to answer a few. This is an important crossroads on study interpretation. All we can definitively say is that intubations during in-hospital cardiac arrest is associated with worsened outcomes.
0: We cannot with any evidence or certainty say why this association occurred. Was it because CPR was stopped to facilitate intubation? That's a popular theory, but we can't say for sure. So would LMA be better? That's another popular
1: theory making its way around our healthcare system. We've got no evidence to support it. But in the absence of literature, you could take this study to mean LMA could be better due to
0: no stoppage of CPR. One of our hospitals has done just that. They've gone to using LMAs routinely for cardiac arrest at a much higher percentage than intubation. With the advent of intubating LMAs, you can just go ahead and intubate the patient through the LMA once you have ROSC. So let's answer that last question. Would you stop somebody from intubating a patient during your next cardiac arrest? That's an interesting question. We've actually had some challenging discussions
1: about this paper with team members in the heat of a code, which we all know is a really
0: poor time to have controversies. Yeah, really poor time. But This really challenges the dogma that people may have learned their whole careers, right? If somebody's coding, it's a crash airway and you have to intubate. But you got to remember that when you're mucking around in the airway and the patient's apneic, that you may be causing more harm than good. In the
1: situations this occurred, it did cause issues between members of the team that had read the study and those who hadn't. We debriefed later about these incidents and started working towards disseminating knowledge Of worsened outcomes with intubation during cardiac arrest through our big hospital system. Information
0: dissemination is really difficult. I'm reminded of the statistics that it can take up to 10 years for practice to change based on any released evidence. Yeah, that's a frightening statistics
1: for most of us to consider, especially those of us who like to be up to date on evidence-based medicine. But in a big healthcare system, you can see how that could happen. So many people have to hear about
0: this study for it to start affecting daily clinical practice. To combat that problem, we're communicating to our provider team the results of studies like this. We've talked about it at meetings with RT leaders throughout our system, and we've talked about it at our basic airway and difficult airway courses. Utilizing traditional journal club and this podcast, which in some ways
1: is a virtual journal club, we hope to reduce that 10-year time frame considerably.
0: That's one of the major benefits of foam. We found this study through several blogs, and... The articles that have been written about it have allowed us to dive into this in way more depth than we would otherwise, much sooner. So let's circle back. What's our takeaway from this paper? Intubating a patient during in-hospital cardiac arrest is associated with worsened outcomes like survival to hospital discharge, ROSC, and functional outcomes. All right, quick hit around. Are you intubating patients in cardiac arrest anymore. Jeremy, go. I personally do not intubate patients during cardiac arrest. If it's logistically difficult, I will be much more inclined to reach for an LMA. Personally, I find if we're trying to intubate, we have to get all of the supplies. We have to get people ready at the head of the bed. We have to move and reposition and do all the stuff and think about it and stop good BVM. And it's just really problematic. Or I can say, hand me an LMA and then shove it in and be done with it. So no, I'm not intubating during cardiac arrest. If you arrive at a code late and someone's already intubating, are you stopping them? I won't stop them, but I won't give them multiple attempts. And if they don't communicate that they are certain that the ET tube is in the vocal cords in the trachea, then I'm going to tell them to take it out and put in an LMA. Yeah,
1: I think I'm, I've kind of hit on the same conclusion after talking with Donna Edelson about it. When the, when I first read this study, I felt like we should stop intubating all in hospital cardiac arrest patients. And I you could still be justified saying that based on this paper. But I think where we've kind of landed is if someone's already intubating, I'm not going to stop them. But if they try to stop CPR, I am going to stop them. And if no one started intubating it, LMA is a great option. If we've got one easily and readily available,
0: we should drop that in.
1: And in the absence of all that, good BVM is a is an appropriate way to go too.
0: You know, and I think the other thing that's really important is that I do want an advanced airway because I like to have continuous quantitative end-tidal CO2 during my arrest. Now, I can't get that with a BVM. I can get that with an LMA, and I can get that with an endotracheal tube. So I do like to have an advanced airway. Further, all of us have bagged a patient And we've seen the perils of poor bag valve mask technique. And sometimes I see during a cardiac arrest, you know, the stats are unreliable. And so people are just kind of doing the bag thing. And so we're not doing the 30 to 2 often and um, we're not actually getting meaningful chest rise. And so in my opinion, I think it's way easier to just throw in an LMA, get your continuous end tidal CO2, uh, decompress your mind and make the room far less complicated and then focus your attention on high quality cpr
1: i think that's a good point remove as much human factors from the equation as you can and you're right bvm has to be good bvm for it to be equivalent to lma in a tube and that's not always the case
0: so what do you think we should be teaching to all of our new hires when they're running their codes how should they instruct Uh, The people managing the airway when they're running the room, what should they tell them to do? Going forward, we are talking to all invested parties
1: to try to at least be mindful about intubations and cardiac arrest by either ensuring that you never stop CPR or utilize an LMA or just do good BVM.
0: To make this more of a true virtual journal club, we would love for people to comment on our website, palmcast.com, to keep the discussion flowing. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, And keep reading.